You're listening to JSCN, radio for the Jewish small communities. Welcome, I'm Ed Horwich and this is Jewish Talk, the podcast for the Jewish small communities and for anybody interested in Jewish culture and Jewish life. Well, one place that you're going to find an abundance of Jewish culture and Jewish life is Limwood. If you've never heard of Limwood or you've never been, it's a collection of talks and presentations on anything Jewish, from cookery, through to music, through to religion, through to philosophy, through to politics. And all these speakers come together in one place and you go round and you pick your talks. You can't do everything. You hope you've picked the best ones. Uh, It's amazing value. It doesn't cost you very much money. And I thought I would bring you a flavour of the most recent. That was Manchester Limwood. So for the next two podcasts, take a seat next to me in the audience and join me for two of the sessions that, that I've selected to bring you. And for the third episode, you're going to be in the audience for my own session, where I conduct an interview with three experts on the life and history of the Jewish community in Wales. But we're going to start by diving into something that I know nothing about. Join me in the audience as we go into the world of the Sefer HaZohar, the Book of Radiance. It's a magical, mystical Torah. It's a commentary in Aramaic. It's part of the corpus of Jewish mystical tradition known as Kabbalah. Its authorship was debated over centuries, but scholars now agree that it was written in the 13th century Spain by a Castilian Kabbalist, Rabbi Moshe de Leon, along with a number of collaborators. Like the Torah, it is written in Aramaic, but this is unlike any other Aramaic. It was invented in medieval Spain by the text sources, and it consists of a hybridization of various Aramaic dialects with numerous Spanish undertones as well. It is a language that is unique to this book, the Zohar. It is a major book that influenced Jews and non-Jews alike. It was embraced by some Christian scholars who saw parallels with aspects of Christian theology and the Holy Trinity, and it influenced some of our greatest thinkers, like Rabbi Itzhak Loria, known as the Ahari in the 16th century. It was also the development of Hasidic Judaism, which distilled Kabbalistic texts like this into psychological concepts that could be applied to religious life. So its effects, its influence were wide and profound. Now I thought I was going to be in way, way over my head, But Jonathan Davis, our presenter for this talk, makes the subject very, very accessible. He explains the background to the Zohar and how the most recent translation has come about and made this text accessible to a much, much wider audience and far easier to understand the concepts. He then takes us through a couple of examples which explore our relationship with God and the nature of the universe and the cosmology. Now, we have the source sheets available for you to download. You just go to our website, jscn.org.uk. If you can't see it straight away, then just use our little search box and put in Zohar and it will pop up and you can download the PDF. So now, join me in the audience for Zohar, presented by Jonathan Davis. 
the last couple of generations, we've been very, very lucky, I think, in, in Jewish life, in textual learning, in, in translation. The last couple of generations we've had translations, a new translation of the whole of the Hebrew Bible has just been finished by a great um, Hebrew scholar called Robert Alter, um, which is very well worth looking at. We've had translations of the, um, the Talmud, the Babylonian Talmud, both by a, a great rabbi in Israel called Adin Steinzeltz, who is affiliated with uh, Lubavitch, with Chabad, and also by um, the uh, Art Scroll publishing house. Now, I generally don't have much time for Art Scroll, but their Talmud is excellent, and they've done a Babylonian Talmud, and they've also done the Jerusalem Talmud. So that's, that's very, very useful. But standing with it, I think, is this translation that I'm going to talk a little bit about. And I'm just going to introduce its origins, how it came to start, and also then sketch for you in the very, very widest terms some of the symbolism and some of the um, myth and fantasy that it employs. It came about like this. Probably about 20 years ago, a woman called Margot Pritzker was learning Hasidic stuff and bits of Zohar with her rabbi in Chicago, a rabbi called Rabbi Yechiel Pupko. Um, a good communal rabbi and a learned rabbi. And she was very much taken up with this whole Jewish mysticism, Kabbalah um, kind of idea, and she was swept up into it. And they were using a translation which was published in the 1930s by Sonsino, which is very, very difficult. In fact, it's still in print, it's in five volumes, and if you start trying to read it, you won't make head and tail of it. Literally, it's, it's very, very opaque. And she says, what can I do? What can I do to, to really make a contribution here? I'd like to... I'd like to create a new translation of the Zohar. I would like to endow it. Big thing. Now, she had one advantage, and actually her sister lives in Manchester, that, uh, that, uh, that uh, I know her sister and brother-in-law um, live near me in Broughton Park in Manchester. And she had one great advantage. And the advantage was that she'd married a guy called Tom Pritzker, who owns the Hyatt Hotel chain which is a bit of a help if you're going to do something like this. And so Pukko said, well, who can I get in touch with? This is, a, this, is a serious, this is a serious business. And he got in touch with a very, very great scholar of Hasidism called Arthur Green, who's written extensively on Hasidism and is something of a contemplative himself and has actually written a terrific, terrific biography of Nachman of Bratslav. And Arthur Green knew of this scholar called Daniel Matt, who was teaching Jewish mysticism at Berkeley in California. And he knew 
that Dan, Daniel Matt had written years earlier some preliminary translations of the Zohar, the Bible of Kabbalah. And he knew that he'd written this book, which I happened to have bought donkeys years ago. And I was just looking at the date, it's 1983, when Daniel Matt, as a young man, did some preliminary translations, which was published in a great series called The Classics of Western Spirituality, which had some uh, numerous Jewish um, entries in it. And they were very, very good. And he got, and got Arthur Green to speak to Daniel Matt, and Daniel Matt had a meeting with Margot Pritzker, and she said, I want you to translate the Zohar. And he said, well, this is, this, is, this is sort of, you're talking about years and years. You're talking about 15, 20 years' work. She said, you don't scare me. <coughs> and she sent him off to Jerusalem with his family, left um, Barclay. And um, he is, was sitting there for quite a few years writing this commentary that we're going to look at. And in, in 2003, the first three volumes were published. This is the first volume. It was published by Stanford University Press. It is in English with some of the Aramaic in it, but the Aramaic text is on the web. And the last volume of this, the twelfth volume, the last volume was published last year. So it's taken 20 years out of, his, out of his life. And after a few years in Jerusalem, he went back to Barclay and he finished nine volumes and his associates have finished the last three. And the section of this Zohar, which I'm going to try and explain to you a little bit of what it is, is a midrash. Are you all familiar with the concept of midrash? Of um, interpretation. Um, into the biblical text. And it's a midrash on the Torah. And the body of the Zohar, the Guf HaZohar, the body of the Zohar, is the first nine volumes that Danny Matt has done. And this is, goes through weekly portions in standard ways that the traditional commentators do and the midrash Rabbah does. It goes through the sedras of the week and it brings out mystical interpretations of of the Sedra of the week. Um, let me sketch a little bit. Kabbalah, what does Kabbalah mean? Kabbalah means reception. If you go into a hotel in Israel, there's a Kabbalah, that's a you go to the reception. And what it means is, Kabbalah means that which has been received. So it is conceived of as ancient wisdom that has been received down the ages. It's commonly called um, mysticism. And what is mysticism? Mysticism, well, mysticism is a Greek word. It's not a really a, 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 a Jewish word, at, a Hebrew word at, at all. In Hebrew, you would use something like sod, secret, or chachma nistara, um, hidden wisdom, or kabbalah. And there has been a long tradition of Jewish mysticism. And the, idea, the idea of mysticism in general is that it is an experiential thing for the person going through it who feels that he has some kind of direct 
connection with the uh, with the divine, with spirituality. So sometimes the the, uh, the, uh, the 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 mystic would feel that he's somehow unified with um, spiritual experience, which he would identify as uh, as God and the intimate knowing of God. And this is secret wisdom, because the word mysticism is it's mysticism itself in Greek has the idea of closed, something that is a closed, secret kind of um, knowledge. And it goes back quite a long way in Jewish, in Jewish thought. Um, the, um, the early Jewish um, mysticism was based about, around the first chapter of Ezekiel, the chariot, this strange chariot vision that Ezekiel has in, in his first chapter. Um, when he sees the chariot with the wheels of human and animal, animal faces and he sees this, this figure of a man on the top of the chariot. And the early Jewish mystics um, pondered, pondered on this and it's always been seen as extremely, extremely dangerous for ordinary people to get involved with. There is a very, very, very famous story in the Babylonian Talmud in a tractate called Chagiga um, of the four rabbis who went into what is called Pardes, Pardes, Paradise. And this is supposed to be mystical speculation. And there was Ben Zoma, um, Ben Azai, Elisha ben Abuya and Rabbi Akiva. And it said that one went mad, one became an apostate, one what it destroyed the shoots, not quite sure what that means. I think one died and only Rabbi Akiva went in in peace and out in peace. Because you had to be, even though they were on a great spiritual level, it destroyed them. So it's conceived of as very, very dangerous. There were books of Jewish mysticism, um, some that were circulated amongst small groups. The Sefer Yetzirah from about the fifth century. And then the book Bahir in about the 11th to 12th century. Groups of Jewish mystics were to be found in Provence in the early, late 1100s and early 1200s. There were also, remember, Jewish communities in Spain. And this form of, mis of mystic speculation crossed the Pyrenees and went into Catalonia and into Castile. In the 1280s and 1290s, probably the early 1300s, there began to appear texts that began to be circulated in Castile. Again, only amongst very, very small groups. These texts grew and grew and grew. The question of authorship is not something that I'm going to touch upon very, very widely, but it was circulated by either the rabbi who wrote it, who is thought to be Moshe de Leon, or his a rather wider circle in Castile. It was attributed to Shimon Bayachai, who was a uh, of a teacher of the Mishnaic period of about the second century. And it was done for this reason. There are, there are many, many reasons. First of all, what is called pseudepigrapha, um, something um, pretending to be written by somebody else. 
um, is a recognised form of religious writing, a religious genre. So it's not in context all that unusual. Um, and it gradually began to be circulated. Other texts were added onto it. So the last three volumes that have been published are uh, the, the Zohar on uh, Ruth, on the Song of Songs, and, and other, other sections as well. Strange, strange book. It stayed amongst groups of people, probably for a couple of hundred years but began to be circulated amongst people who were interested in this. And in the 1550s, it was published, they were gathered together and published, first of all in Mantua and then Cremona, and then it took off. And it was conceived of um, over several hundred years as having the same authority as the Bible and the Talmud. It was considered to be the Holy Zohar. Some people never, even in the Middle Ages, didn't take to it at all um, and tried to discredit it. But it took a very, very deep hold. You know, in, in Jewish life, I suppose there are, there, there are periods that cause profound change. I suppose the, the, the break with Christianity over 100 years, 200 years, however long it took, created profound change. The circulation of the Zohar, which was in many ways a reaction to the rational, philosophic tradition of Maimonides, who was a, an extreme rationalist in Jewish context, and there was a reaction against that. And this you can find epitomized in the Zohar. What is it? If you look at the Zohar, it is fantasy. It is deep myth. It's symbol. It's beautiful. Reading, reading Daniel Matt's translation and brilliant commentary for the first time, I think, there have, there have been other, other attempts, and there's a very, quite a successful one called the Mishnata Zohar, which was translated in the Littman Library in three volumes by, um, by a rabbi called David Goldberg, who was a curator of Jewish books in the British Museum, um, of the Israeli scholar Isaiah Tishbe. But it's not complete, and the commentary is, is only very, very short, and it only takes out selections. This is virtually complete. What is it? It inhabits a world of fantasy. And remember, we're in the medieval world. And the medieval world is a world of fantasy. It's a world of angels and demons and heaven and hell and palaces and um, wisdom. And, and it's, so it can be seen. It's a huge work, a huge work. And it is, perhaps can be seen as a, an early form, it's even been called an early form of Spanish literature, even though it is written in a form of kind of cod Aramaic, the Aramaic of the Talmud. 
But if you actually examine it very closely, there are Arabic words in it, there are Spanish words, um, sort of leading you to, to realize that this is a product of the Middle Ages when Kabbalah as we know it really got going. Before we look at a couple of passages um, from the, this translation, what is it about? What is it about? Well, it's about lots of things, but it's about creation. It's about God in the world. It's about how God moves in the world. But much more than that, it is about the very nature of God, of how these mystics conceived God actually working. This is a very, very strange and odd thing. And the first thing that must be said, look, please look at the front. It is based around the idea of what are called the sephirot. The sephirot um, was originally a term, I think, from the Sefer Yitzira, and it simply means countings or numberings. And they are conceived of as potencies from the Godhead. But first of all, the initial thing to understand is that God can never be known. God is above and beyond the Sephirot. So God is called Ein Sof, without limit, infinity, without end, Ein Sof. You can never know the nature of God as he is in himself. And this Ein Sof, this unknowable God, somehow through an act of will, of Rotson, starts to give forth or emanate for those of, technically, it has a lot of what is called Neoplatonic symbolism, begins to pour out, to emanate these potencies. And they are conceived of as ten potencies. And this is God as he is, under, as he works within the world. The amazing thing is, which in a sense makes it very, very modern, is that the symbolism is extremely radical. So as soon as you start the process of emanation, you are th thrown up bang against highly sexualized symbolism. So the idea of male and female being within the body of God is central to the Kabbalah. The first emanation, the first three are the highest emanation. Keter, crown, or Keter Elyon. This somehow has some kind of relationship to Ein Sof. And you see here, the first Keter, you see it's got two little, two little, um, lines above it, which point to Ein Sof, point to the unknowable God. And there are many, many, the Sephirot are not talked about in the Zohar. 
you've got symbols and the symbols come again and again and again. And the symbols for, amongst others, for Keter is will, the first act. Or Ayin, nothingness, which goes back to Ein Sof. But this is a fundamental idea that Ein Sof is no thing. Because God is not a thing. Because if you have a thing, then you've got to have it in relation to another thing. Therefore, God is no thing or nothing. And this actually recurs again and again in Western mysticism. Because you have a, 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 a mystic like um, Meister Eckhart, who's a little while later, who calls God nichts, nothing. Or the great Spanish um, mystic, uh, St. John of the Cross, poet, who calls God nada, nothing. Not something that can be grasped. So how do we grasp it? Kete gives birth to Chachma, wisdom. Wisdom is conceived of as a primordial point, or the beginning. Chachma. Bina is the next one, understanding. And this is conceived of as a palace and womb. And this is not comprehensive by any means. There are many more symbols for each of these sephirot. In the, in, so whenever you come to them, you know that's what it's talking about. Chachma is a point. Bina is a womb. The idea is that the point, the male, impregnates the womb. So immediately you have male-female symbolism within the palace, within the womb. There are other, there are in fact, later on there were other systems here. For example, Cato was, 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 was put very, very high. And if you think of, of Lubavitch, of Chabad, the, the words Chabad come from the first three sephirot. Um, and for Lubavitch and some systems, Keter is above, and there's Chochma Bina Da'at, knowledge. So Chabad, so that's how you get. And if you read some of the um, Hasidic literature, they will refer to the Zohar again and again and again. But you'll also find it's very, very rare to find a teacher who will actually teach you Zohar. I've never come across it. Um, I'm, I'm sure there are, but within the Hasidic community, I've never actually known anybody who actually teaches Zohar a Zohar. Because it's conceived of as something that you, so secret, you shouldn't do. And in fact, he went on later to say you shouldn't even study Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism, until you were 40. Till you'd filled your belly with the good meat and wine of Torah. Sort of the straightforward stuff, you see, um, before you got into this. Because otherwise it could um, sweep you up and it could drive you mad. Which is a bit rich, really, as one of the greatest of the latest Kabbalists, the um, Isaac Luria, called the Ari, the lion, died at 33. But there you are. There you are. That's, that's the idea. It is a chain of being that comes down. After Chachma and Bina comes Chesed and Gevurah. Chesed is the right side, the side of love. And so Chesed is, is exemplified by Abraham, 
sometimes as water, sometimes as a right arm or white in colours, grace or greatness, gadula, love. That has got to be balanced on the left side by din, power, judgment, rigour. That's red. It's fire. It's not water. It's the left arm. It's Isaac. That flows in to a very important sefirah. And just look at it. We're already constructing the outline of a human body. Sometimes it's seen as a tree. Sometimes it's seen as a tree. It's more often seen as a, a body symbolism. So chesed would be right arm. Gevura, judgment, would be left arm. And these have got to be in, these are in balance. And these flow into the central sefirah, tiferet, beauty, or rachamim, as it's very often called. And that is compassion, but it is also hakadosh baruchu. The, bless, the Holy One, blessed be He. This is the male central, f flows into this male centrality. It's called King, Green, Torso, Jacob, Moses. Then you have the two legs, Netzach, Endurance, and Splendor. Netzach on the right, Splendor, Chod on the left, Prophecy. These are going down the scale. They are, are not as eminent, if you like, as Chesed and Gavura. They Tiferet and these two legs flow into Yesod, which a translation of that would be foundation. And this is the male coming down through foundation. Look at the idea of look at the, the symbolism there. And as I say, it's only part of the symbolism that's used. Righteous one, covenant, phallus. This is the divine penis. And it flows into Malchut, the final sefirah, which is the Shekhinah. The Shekhinah in straightforward mainstream Judaism is seen as the indwelling presence of God. And even within mainstream Judaism, it is conceived of as female, the feminine presence of God. And Shekhinah is the touch just as we have the two little lines going up to infinity, to Ein Sof. So we have in Malchut, in Shekhinah, you have the lines coming down to touch the world. So it is a chain of being. There is, as Kabbalah developed, there are all sorts of very, very complex systems that developed out of this. And you come down into, into actuality, into materiality. And the great work of the Kabbalist is contemplation of the Sefirot in everything they do because it flows through every understanding, every blessing, every ritual act. And the idea is that Malchut, the feminine presence of God, is to be united in harmony with Tiferet, the male presence. 
So you have balance of male and female. And remember, this is conceived of within the Godhead as a dynamic. It's always, it's always moving. Now, you, you, you'll, you may say to me, did the Kabbalists really believe in this? Or in what sense did they believe in it? Or how, how can this possibly relate to, to our understanding today? What, what relevance does this have? I think to say, did they believe in it, I think is the wrong question. Because another great point of the Zohar is to say that the words of the Torah that it tries to bring mystical meanings to, the words of the Torah are not its true meaning. The stories, the narratives, the laws, these are seen as garments. And the job of the Kabbalist, the job of the Jewish mystic, is to peel away the surface understanding of the words and to reveal the true mystical understanding. Remember, um, very, very quickly, in the medieval, age, uh, medieval world, the rabbis, the Rimforshim, like Rashi and um, Ramban and Ibn Ezra and what have you, they worked within a system of four levels of interpretation, which again was called Pardes, which stands for Pshat, the plain meaning, wasn't quite that, but for our purpose, the plain meaning, Remez, which is a kind of hint, um, which you can link words to other words and what have you, words that hint of other words. Drush, which brings out the sort of homiletical meaning, the meaning that you can teach from, and it can move very far away from the actual plain meaning of the text. And down the last one was Sud, the secret mystical meaning, which in most of the medieval commentators you do get you don't get you do get it in Nachmanides in Ramban um, who was slightly before the Zohar so he doesn't refer to the Zohar but he's within that within a, a tradition of, of Jewish mysticism um, so if you strip away the plain meaning you will get to the real meaning and um, let's look at a few of just two of the translations we're going to the beginning, Parashat Boreshit. And just to give you a flavour of this translation, and remember it's paradox. It's paradox. And it's fantasy. And saying for us, this is fantasy and myth. But very, very, it can be very powerful fantasy and myth. Boreshit bara Elohim. The first words of the Hebrew Bible. In the beginning, God created. We're all familiar with that. The beginning of the Zohar on Bereshit. At the head of the potency of the king, he engraved engravings in lustre on high, a spark of impenetrable darkness, flashed within the concealed of the concealed from the head of infinity, a cluster of vapour forming in formlessness, thrust in a ring, not white, not black, not red, not green, no colour at all. As a cord surveys, it yielded radiant colours. Deep within the spark gushed a flow, splaying colours below, concealed within the concealed of the mystery of Ensof. It split, 
and did not split its aura. It was not known at all until under impact of splitting a single concealed supernal point shone. Beyond that point, nothing is known. It is called Reshit, beginning, first command of all. Then it takes from the book of Daniel, where, it come, where the Zohar is mentioned, and Zohar means radiance. The enlightened will shine like the Zohar radiance of the sky, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. That's from Daniel, that's where the book gets its name. Carrying on. Zohar, radiance, concealed of concealed, struck its aura, which touched and did not touch this point. Then this beginning expanded, building itself a palace worthy of glorious praise. There it sowed seed to give birth availing worlds. The secret is, her stock is seed of holiness. Zohar, reading radiance, sowing seed for its glory like the seed of fine purple silk, wrapping itself within, weaving itself a palace, constituting its praise, availing all. And listen to this, last few lines. With this beginning, the unknown concealed one created the palace. This palace is called Elohim, God. The secret is Bereshit bara Elohim. With beginning, dash, created God. Okay. You can tell it's poetic. What on earth does it mean? You'll see immediately that it's full of paradox. Colours, no colours. Splitting, no splitting. Paradox is at the essence of mysticism. Things that are and are not. We're not talking about rational thought. We're talking about deep myth and symbol. Just look at some of the, the commentary. Spark of impenetrable darkness, number four. How can a spark, if it's a spark, how can it be impenetrable darkness? It's a paradox. That's the essence of the thing. Engraved engravings, number two. These engravings eventually manifest as a sephirot. Then go down to the section over here, which says the spark is so potently brilliant. The spark is so potently brilliant that it overwhelms comprehension. Many mystics convey similar, similar paradoxical images. A ray of divine darkness in Dionysus, the luminous darkness, Gregory of Nyssa, the black light, Iranian Sufism. What Daniel Matt does, he tries to explain it, but he brings every reference, and not, every, not only every single Jewish reference, it's quite amazing where the Zohar is picking it, up its, its terminology from. But he also does... Islamic mysticism, he brings in, he brings in Christian mysticism. This is a remarkably comprehensive work. Go to number 11. It split and did not split. 
The flow somehow broke through, but the nature of the breakthrough is impossible to describe. So the act is stated and immediately denied. The paradox is pushed right in front of you. So you know you're not dealing with rationality. And that's the whole point. Because remember, this was in some ways a reaction to the great Jewish philosophic tradition of Aristotelian rationalism. Then go to page 109. Zohar, radiance, concealed of concealed, struck its aura, which touched and did not touch this point. Again, asserting something, denying it, the point. Number 12. A single concealed supernal point, beginning. The flow of emanation manifests as a point of light. This is the second sifirah, chokhmah, wisdom, which is called beginning because it is the first ray of divine light to appear outside of Keter, the first aspect of God that can be known. Number 16. Or oh, sorry, 15. Zohar, radiance. The word designates the hidden power of emanation and provides the title of the book. 16. This radiance, this point, the spark of emanation flashes again, and Keter, the aura, subtly transmits the impulse to Chokhmah, the point of wisdom. Turn over. Palace worthy of glorious praise, sowed seed. The purpose of emanation is to display the glory of the hidden God, which is achieved through a rhythm of revelation and concealment. Only by concealing itself can the overwhelming light be revealed. The point expands into a circle, a palace. The third sifirah, Bina, understanding, she is the divine womb, where the seed of Chachmah, the divine father, is sown. And Bina gives birth to the seven lower sefirot, which engender the rest of the creation. The idea that the sperm originates in the brain is based on the theory of the second century Greek physician Galen, common in medieval literature. So he tries to put it in, in context that gives you a, a, an understanding of it. Now, I'm going to go to The Secret Is. So go down again to, with this beginning, the unknown concealed one. And this is fascinating. Because it shows you how the Zohar actually translates and actually understands the very beginning words of the Torah. And it's very, very surprising. Read the lines again. With this beginning, the unknown concealed one created the palace. This palace is called Elohim, God. The secret is Bereshit bara Elohim. With beginning, dash, created God. Go to 22. The secret is... Have we all got 22? The Zohar offers its mystical reading of the opening words of Genesis. It translates the first word, Bereshit, as with beginning, rather than in the beginning, relying on an alternative meaning of the preposition base. 
and he gives the sources for that. The subject of the verb, Elohim, God, <coughs> follows the verb bara, created. In its typical hyper-literal fashion, the author or authors of the Zohar insist on reading the words in the exact order in which they appear. Therefore, therefore, thereby transforming God into the object. This means that the subject is now unnamed. That is perfectly appropriate because the true subject of emanation is unnameable. The opening words of the Bible no longer mean in the beginning God created, but rather with beginning, by, that is by means of the point of Chachma, the ineffable source created Elohim, the palace of Bina. With beginning created God, Bert Reshit, Bara. With beginning, Bara created Elohim God. God is not doing the creating. <laughs> it's been the meaning, perfectly grammatically, okay, is that something created God. What created God? Ain't soft. Because God, Elohim, now becomes the third of the Sefirah. So with beginning, with Chachmah, the male point, creates within the womb of Bina, the third Sefirah, creates humanity, creates creation. It's a very, very strange reading. Hmm? It literally makes sense. It's hyperliteral. So what the Kabbalist is doing, what, what the Zohar is doing, is stripping away our understanding of the, of the words. I mean, so there's, within the Mephorshim, within Rashi and Nachmanides, Ramban, there is a disagreement as to exactly what Bereshit means, but nothing like this leads me right into the second, the second example. He drove out. Remember, uh, God drives Adam out of the garden. Yeah? And the Torah says, V'yagaresh et ha'adam. He drove out the man. Let's read what Rabbi Elazar says. Rabbi Elazar said, We do not know who divorced whom. If the Blessed Holy One divorced Adam or not. But the word is transposed. He drove out. Et. Precisely. Who drove out Et? Adam. Adam actually drove out Et. Consequently, it is written, Hashem Elohim expelled him from the Garden of Eden. Why did he expel him? Because Adam drove out Et, as we have explained. What on earth does this mean? 
he takes three words from the end of the, um, the Garden of Eden narrative. Vigoresh et ha-adam. Let's see how he deals with them. One, four, three, five. He drove out et ha-adam. Literally, he drove out the human. The preceding verse reads similarly, Yudhei Vavhei Elohim expelled him from the garden. The apparent redundancy stimulates the following mystical midrash. The redundancy is et. What does et mean? It means nothing. It's a nothing word. Via Goresh Adam, he drove out the man. Via Goresh et Adam. Why is the Torah saying et for the Kabbalist, for the Zohar? Let's read 1436. We do not know who divorced whom. Several Midrashim interpret the biblical word via Goresh. He drove out in the sense of Gerushin. Gerushin means divorce. See the similarities of the words. And then he quotes Bereshit Rabbah and another Midrash and the Alkut Shemonian that said Yalaru Rabbah. He drove out Adam. This teaches that the Holy, Blessed Holy One divorced him like a wife. Gives the sources. This teaches that he was divorced like a wife, divorced from her husband because of some indecency. Adam's harmonious and intimate relationship with God is ruined by sin. Rabbi Elazar adopts this Midrashic view but reassigns the roles. 1437, here we come to it. Et, what does et mean? Et, precisely. Grammatically, the accusative particle et has no ascertainable independent sense. But as Rabbi Akiva taught and Rabbi Nachum Gimzo, when et appears in a biblical verse, it amplifies the original meaning. Here, as often in the Zohar, et becomes a name for Shekhinah, the lowest of the Sefirot. So we're back in the world of these divine emanations. And this comprises the totality of speech, the entire alphabet from Aleph to Tav. And this is running throughout the Zohar. And the, he um, gives a Christian parallel in the book of Revelations, you know, where it says, I am Aleph and Omega from the beginning and the end of the, uh, the alpha, Greek alphabet. 1438. Adam actually drove out Et. By dividing the biblical sentence, he drove out Et, Adam, into two units. Rabbi Elazar transforms its meaning. The first unit consists of he drove out Et. The second identifies the subject of the sentence, which is shockingly not God. God didn't drive out, but Adam drove out Et. And what did he do? His sin consists in divorcing Shekhinah. He's breaking the, the sephirotic chain. Carry on. In the Zohar, the exact nature of Adam's sin is a tightly guarded secret. The biblical account of the garden story is seen as hiding the true meaning, where Rebbe Shimon recounts a conversation he had with Adam while selecting his future site in paradise. Adam was sitting next to me, speaking with me, and he asked that his sin not be revealed to the whole world beyond what the Torah had recounted. It is concealed in that tree in the Garden of Eden. 
The tree of knowledge of good and evil symbolizes Shekhinah. Adam's sin was that he worshipped and partook of Shekhinah alone, splitting her off from the other Sephirot and divorcing her from her husband, Tiferet, the tree of life. On the psychological plane, the sin corresponds to the splitting off of consciousness from the unconsciousness, from, from the unconscious. By his Midrashic transposition, Rabbi Elazar teaches that Adam divorced Shekhinah, divorcing her from Tiferet, and consequently also from himself. Down to the bottom of the comment. Adam's sin has driven Shekhinah from the garden and dissolved her union with Tiferet, so she finds herself abandoned in a no-man's land. Meanwhile, as a result of his sin, Adam is banished from the garden. Wandering outside, he finds Shekhinah, and together they go into exile. It's highly poetic. It's beautiful in a way. And you will find, just as we are, only got five minutes, so I'll leave a couple of minutes for, for questions. But you will find the symbolism comes again and again and again and again, and you get used to it. And you realise it is, it is very poetic, and this fantasy is very beautiful. Just make two very, very quick points. This is a work of early European literature, and not much later, you know, Dante was, 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 was writing the Divine Comedy of um, going through a hell and a purgatory and heaven, a, a journey. And just as journeys take place amongst the companions, the, the rabbis who uh, throng the Zohar narrative, and, you know, and a couple of years, a couple of hundred years later, actually, it's early Spanish literature. Then you get Don Quixote, <laughs> another quest, another quest literature. But the final point that I want to make is if the Zohar can teach us anything today, it is that we must not be hung up on literalism. The great sin of so much, so many religious people today is literalism of taking just how unliteral you've seen in these two examples how unliteral so simply to talk about you know science and religion or is the book of Genesis historically accurate or is it scientifically accurate is to miss the whole point of the nature of the literature and if that is the, I think, the most important lesson that this kind of learning and this kind of understanding can give us is to see it as fantasy, as myth, that we cannot at all, when using religious language, be hung up on literalism. And I'd leave it there. Thank you. Thank you. Well, Mazeltov, you're obviously as enthralled about Jewish mysticism in the magical world of the Zohar as I was after that talk. If you're interested in the full 12 volumes of the Zohar, the translation by Daniel Matt, uh, it's available. I've got a link on the JSCN website. You'll have to fork out a pretty penny. It's about $700. But if you are more likely to get into something a slightly shorter read and slightly lighter on the pocket, then uh, Daniel Matt's preliminary translations of the Zohar is available on Amazon. And we've got a link to that. Uh, it's available in all good bookshops, I should say, as well as Amazon. Uh, 
<laughs> just a few pounds. It represents about 2% that uh, Daniel has uh, extracted from the full translation of the Zohar. It arrived on my doormat this morning. I'm really looking forward to getting into that a lot more. We also have links to the Art Scroll Babylonian Talmud and Jerusalem Talmuds. Um, they're multiple volumes as well and really for the dedicated reader. Next time we're going to bring you another talk from Limud, so look forward to that. If you've enjoyed this podcast or any of our other podcasts, then please rate them five star on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from and write a small review. Really, that helps. The algorithms that all these things work by, it, they boost it up and make it much easier for people to find. I'm Ed Horwich. This is Jewish Talk, the podcast for the Jewish small communities.